pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your forever word. As uh, we've just heard in that song, that generations come and go, and yet your word lives on. Uh, your word will be a forever word. Your word established this world. Your word, your word carries this world now. Even now, in uh, the mess of our world, we know that it is by you and for you and through you that this world is held together. And so, as we open your word now. Uh, Help us not to be presumptuous. Help us not to forget whose word it is that we are hearing. It's the mighty word of our God. And we pray that you would do a work in us by this word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Nehemiah chapter 4, as we continue our journey through this wonderful book. But again, let me start in the Gospels. In Matthew 5, Jesus is preaching about the nature of the kingdom that he, the king, has come to establish on earth. A kingdom that uh, the New Testament tells us that we, the church, have become. And we've become that because the king died and then conquered death for us. And of that kingdom, in Matthew 5, Jesus simply says this, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the city on a hill. That is what God is doing in our world. He is building a city on a hill. Uh, he is building his church, the city on the hill where he dwells with us, where he is at the heart of all we do, where, where he is worshipped, where his word is heard and heeded, uh, a city that's meant to call to our world, come and see and live because of this king. And what we're doing as we look at the book of Nehemiah together is that we are getting a, a unique insight into a, a stage in that building project as, as God worked towards the, the moment when his son would come and, well, as he says in John 4, finish that work. Uh, as we look at Nehemiah together, it is helping us understand what, what God has done throughout the path of salvation history as we reach our own point in that history. Uh, we see in it how all the hopes that uh, we're reading about in Nehemiah are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get to see how we who, by faith in the Lord Jesus, are involved yet still in this work, this city on a hill that God is building even here in Warunga. As we've gone through Nehemiah together, if you've been with us, you will remember that in the early chapters, the first thing we saw about what God is building in our world is that to be part of it requires, well, like him, a broken heart for our world. And then like the Lord Jesus himself, like Nehemiah does in chapter one, a bended knee before God the Father, praying for his favor, praying for his grace, praying for our troubled city. And then having seen that last week in Nehemiah chapter 3, we, we saw that uh, having uh, brought our city before God in prayer, it then involves uh, throwing ourselves into the work of rebuilding this restoration project that God is about. Uh, we saw Nehemiah 3, a, a fellowship of builders, and that's always been the way it is with God's people. And yet today as we turn to Nehemiah 4, and the same is true in Nehemiah 5 and 6, we'll see the context, the realistic context that that building project is undertaken in. And that context is one of opposition. In chapter 1, Nehemiah prayed, and as he prayed, he made clear that the only way that this project would prevail in our world was, well, by God's favour. And part of the reason for that was because it was going to be undertaken in a, in a place that was opposed to God and his purposes. And that is true for us, as it was in Jerusalem, as it is in Sydney. We live in a city filled with those who are opposed to God's restoration project, opposed to God's kingdom being established here on earth. 
And so as we build, like those who built in Nehemiah's time, we are building in a city marked uh, well, not by acknowledgement of God, but by self-rule and self-determination. As we proclaim the gospel by which he builds his church, it is saying to our city, surrender, the king is here. And so we need to know that such news will meet opposition at every turn in our city, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our streets, in the government, amongst our family, amongst our friends. That is the context of this building project, our opposition at every turn. And as it was for Nehemiah, as it was for Jesus, so it will be for us as we follow him. And so as we look at this opposition uh, through the lens of Nehemiah 4, I want you to consider uh, how irrational such opposition is to what God is doing in our world. The gospel that we build with comes to a city like Sydney that, well, like Jerusalem, is marked by trouble and shame and insecurity. And it, it comes with good news. It comes with news of welfare. It comes with news of restoration. That's at the heart of the gospel. The gospel brings welfare to a city like ours. But what happens when such news comes? Well, let's look at it through the lens of Nehemiah. Uh, jump back with me to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10, and you'll see the, the first signs of the opposition growing even before the building project properly began. Uh, Nehemiah 2, verse 10. When Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, that is the building project, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Uh, their response is indignation. Their response is uncertainty. You can imagine it, can't you, as, as uh, uh, Samballat and Tobiah, who've, who've been in the city for some time, start to see this, this building project taking shape. Uh, uh, they feel increasingly ill at ease with the intrusion of the new building project all around them, the, the, the disturbance it's making to the neighbourhood. And so the opposition builds. But as we look at the opposition in Nehemiah 4, we need to see that the heart of the opposition is unbelief that God is for the city and that they should submit to this God. And that should not surprise us because, as I said before, we live in a world that has done the same. We live in a world where, in the words of Romans, has exchanged the truth of God and what he is doing in our world for a lie the, the truth that the God is committed to our welfare, well, we reject that and instead we think only we are committed to that. Unbelief, therefore, is unsurprising, but it doesn't make it easy to deal with. And so let's look up close in Nehemiah 4 at the opposition that is caused, at, well, at its heart by unbelief, uh, both then for Nehemiah and then we'll see it through, well, our own experience as well. And so here's the first form of un, 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 opposition that we see in Nehemiah 4 is unbelief expressed in, well, human thinking. Have a look at verse 1 of Nehemiah 4. When Samballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? His questions, and there's more than I've just read out there, are designed to expose the ridiculous nature of God's plan, as if this is going to work. Uh, there's two parts to his unbelief. Firstly, there's the unbelief that it, because he thinks his building project is too weak to work, too weak to last. And it does strike me as he asks that question, what are these feeble Jews doing? 
that much of 21st century secular humanism agrees when it comes to what God is doing through his church in our time. The church is, in our world, seen as a feeble project in its death throes. But we who know the gospel of Christ crucified know that it is actually that weakness and indeed the death throes of the gospel at the heart of the gospel that make it mighty and make it wise. Uh, during a recent uh, time away and uh, long service leave, I, I read a book by a, a guy called Tom Holland, not a Christian, but talking about the impact the Christian gospel and Christianity has had over the centuries. And here's what he said. The cross, that ancient implement of torture, remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. It is the audacity of it. The audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and the civilization to which it gave birth. Today, the power of this strangeness remains as alive as it ever has been. It is manifest in the great surge of conversions that has swept Africa and Asia over the past century and in the conviction of millions upon millions that the breath of the Spirit, like a living fire, still blows upon the world, a revolution that has, at its molten heart, God dead on a cross. It is the weakness of uh, this project, the foolishness of this project in our world's eyes that is its very power and wisdom. But the opposition uh, isn't just about, uh, well, the, the perception that it's too weak to last. There's also an unbelief that, that Sambalat has that, uh, well, the, the, the problems in our world are too big to restore with, with this sort of endeavour. Look at Sambalat's final mocking question in verse 2 of chapter 4. Can they bring these stones back to life? This burnt-out shell of a city? This rubble on a hill, it's, it's too broken and damaged and, well, dead ever to, uh, to, to be revived. Well, again, those who know the power of the gospel know there is still hope. Death to life is, is the foundation of God's city. It is built on his death and, well, his resurrection. Our God uh, is in the business of bringing dead stones to life. He makes us, well, in the, in the words of 1 Peter 2, living stones by faith in the Lord Jesus. But keep looking at the opposition. There's something worse than the ridicule of an unbeliever. It's actually when that opposition comes from within the city, or at least seemingly within. Verse 3, we, we meet Tobiah. And as the book goes on, it's clear that Tobiah casts himself as one of God's people. Uh, he's on the inside. Uh, Tobiah is just as much, though, in the end, an unbeliever as Sam Ballot. But his is sort of cloaked with religion, cloaked with, uh, well, church attendance. And what's remarkable is rather than working side by side uh, with those that we saw in chapter 3, if you look at chapter 4, verse 3, he is side by side with Samballot. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Again, it's a, a sign of just how pathetic the things of our God are. Tobiah has no concept of what this fellowship of builders are doing, no confidence in it. To him, it's just some flimsy structure that will, uh, even the slightest weight on it, it will, will collapse under the pressure. Now, how is it that a religious man could say that of the city on a hill that God is building? Well, think for a moment about what he sees when he looks at the project. 
this man who is full of religion but has no faith in the God of that religion. He comes from a perspective of religious unbelief. As he looks on a city where God promises to dwell with his people, in his unbelief, he doesn't see the God of the city, he just sees a city with nothing in it other than people. It's just a human fellowship. And there are some who approach Christianity and religion that way. Uh, There's no God in it, it's just humans. And as he looks upon the city where where God is worshipped, his unbelief frees him from that sort of devotion. And and when you take God out of the equation of the object of our worship, you worship the next best thing, which is, well, me. And as he sees the city where God's word is heeded, in his unbelief, God sits beneath human words and thoughts. God submits to our ways. And the only thing that gives a city strength is human reason and plans, and without it, the city would collapse. And I want to suggest that this sort of unbelief, this sort of opposition could grow even in our own church as we go about God's building project in these final days, the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. How easy it would be uh, to, to lose sight of where the strength and wisdom of our church is. Uh, our strength, in fact, our only strength is the gospel of Christ crucified. But we build in a city where, uh, where that gospel is regarded as either weak or offensive. How tempting it is then as, as we seek to build, as we seek to have more impact in Warunga and beyond, to, to, to want to uh, diminish that and become more culturally relevant or, or more attractive, heck, at least less boring and less offensive. Perhaps human thoughts, human plans are better than God's. Uh, Here's our food for thought for small group discussions this week. Consider how that would impact the ministries of our church if over time we lost confidence in God's ways and instead went with human ways like Tobiah. Well, in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, you see the right response to unbelief. It's prayer. In fact, the dominant thing all the way through the book of Nehemiah is not the building of the wall, it's Nehemiah and the people of God at prayer. Nehemiah brings the opposition to God. Nehemiah prays for God to vindicate his project for the sake of his own name. And and we're told in verse 6 of chapter 4 that as a result of this prayer, that the project continued with heartfelt passion. The heart of the people was to do the work, we're told. And so as their passion to continue the project uh, ramps up, so does the opposition. As Nehemiah 4 shows us, the opposition uh, that had started with ridicule and just thoughts now moves to action. Have a look at verse 7. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the men of Ashod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. Uh, It's quite a picture, isn't it, as they go about this restoration project for their God. The enemies of the city are now on on every angle, all around them. And uh, uh, again, this is a picture of what we should expect in the path of God's restoration project. Even as it reaches us, the opposition continues. The church of Jesus Christ continues to face such attacks. And that is just as Jesus promised us in John 15. Do you know, I was reading this week, uh, I get a, a prayer update from a group called Barnabas Fund, which is uh, a group that uh, seeks to support and uphold in prayer the persecuted church. And uh, it struck me because it gave a report of a, a baptism service in Burkina Faso just 
in May. Uh, in May, we had a baptism service in this very building and uh, a confirmation service, and we, we celebrated uh, people coming to declare their faith publicly. The same thing happened there in Burkina Faso, but when that happened, armed men killed 15 of those who were baptised on the 18th of May this year. Uh, others were forced to flee, not just the scene, but their homes forever. Uh, the opposition to God's building project continues as they see the gaps being filled, as they see people coming into God's building project, living stones coming into it. They are opposed to it. Uh, now, the reality is that the ground on which we build here in Sydney is much, much safer than there. And I suspect that that freedom demands urgent work for us while we can. Because if we are taking seriously Jesus' promise that trouble will come, then we must know trouble will come and has begun. Now back to Nehemiah 4. Opposition all around them, the attacks starting to get more ferocious, the logical response, fear. You're surrounded by powerful forces. Uh, you're feeble, you feel fragile, you're exposed on the hill, the, the costs are mounting. And, and so verse 10 to 12, we're told the people are afraid. We're, we're not strong enough, they say. We, we can't sustain this. Uh, and then there's just a, the, the sheer work ahead of them. There's too much rubble, they say. And then the costs keep mounting. It's getting harder and harder to keep up this work. Uh, this ain't what we signed up for. The more they built, the more the opposition grew and the more tired they became, more depleted they became and more the fear grew. It's logical, isn't it? Yes? No. You look at Nehemiah 4 verse 13. You see in Nehemiah seeing clearly the logical response to this opposition, knowing very well what God has promised he would do. Nehemiah gathers the people, surrounded as they are, exhausted as they are, buckling under the cost and he takes action. But it's not the frenzied action of unbelief and fear. It's, it's the calm action of hope and belief. He prays again and then he, well, he simply posts builders in small clans, families really, at points along the wall where there's weakness. He doesn't put them there just to keep building. No, this is a war. And so he equips them with weapons with which now to fight the opposition. Now remember, we met them last week. These are regular workers. These are goldsmiths and perfume makers. A, a man and his daughters, side by side. Uh, then he gives them a, a, a short but amazing speech in verse 14. Simply three points to the speech, uh, like any good sermon. Uh, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord and fight. It's amazing, isn't it? In moments of fear, we can lose sight of just how mighty and awesome our God is. Lose sight of the reason he called us, lose sight of just how heartbroken we should be for our city and how desperately important this building project is. And all too easily, we shrink back. We fear opposition. We perhaps fear hard work. We fear the cost of going God's way. And we do it because we forget. And so Nehemiah simply says, remember the Lord. He is mighty. He is great. He is awesome. And fight. You know, that remains his battle cry to us, God. Our job on this hill is not just to build a city, but to defend it from those who would oppose the city. The fellowship of builders that we met in Nehemiah 3 are now a fellowship of fighters. And our God gives us everything we need, every weapon we need to defend his city. 
I wonder if you heard in our second reading, uh, Ephesians 6, uh, a wonderful description of the armour God gives his people as we fight against sin, the world and the devil in this world. Uh, the belt of truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with, with peace, a shield of faith, the, the helmet of salvation. And then, of course, the, 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 the weapon he gives us, the sword of the spirit, the very word of God, the only weapon we will ever need on this hill to defend this building project. Because here is a word that uh, we're told in the scriptures brings dead things to life. Here is a word that can demolish strongholds and arguments. Here, here is a word that can stand above our culture and speak right into it. Here is a word that can judge and a word that can redeem. And every time we gather, even virtually and remotely at present, God is swinging this mighty weapon to build and fight for his restoration project. And so he simply says to us, even in the midst of our current lockdown, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord and fight. Especially when you see what is at stake. Nehemiah looks at his people and he looks them in the eye in verse 14 and he tells them what they're fighting for. Do you see it there? Uh, he, you're fighting for the name of this city. You're fighting for peace and security for those who live in the city. And then you're fighting for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and wives and every generation that will follow us. Now, we who live in the last days of this restoration project, we who build on the now finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, need to know that it is now our turn to build and our turn to defend this city and to know that it will not happen without cost. You know, the great lie that Satan tells us as we go about his work, uh, go about God's work building the church, is that it can be built from a place of comfortable, costless faith. But you and I, we build on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every stone laid on top of him follows his pattern. <laughs> he was a man of sorrows. He was familiar with suffering. He was despised and rejected in this world. He was opposed by Satan. He was opposed by the religious unbelievers and opposed by the world. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He was flogged and beaten and bloodied. And do you know what he says to you as you take part in this building project? He says, take up your cross and follow me. And if you want to know it, whether it's worth it, go back uh, and see the names in chapter 3 who built and fought for this city. Those happy few, that there's so few band of men and women and children who were there that day. And then go forward to chapter 7 and see generation upon generation upon generation that lived and worshipped in the city because of this fellowship of builders and fighters those who were willing to count the cost and stay and build and fight. I remember in year six, uh, I was not a Christian. And I remember uh, we had a scripture teacher teach us at my primary school, Mr. Broadhead, which is not a great name for a scripture teacher, to be honest. He, uh, he was mocked regularly by our class. No one, hardly anyone listened to him. And I remember him saying at the end of year six, he says, you know what, I'm going to be back here next year teaching again. And I'm not upset by your, what you've said to me because God is worth it. And I'm here because some of you will listen and it will change your life. I build today because in that ratty rabble of a classroom, that humble man stayed despite the opposition in the face of my unbelief, 
he kept building and fighting with that mighty sword. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love this world. You love our city. You love our suburb, Wurunga. You long for it to be restored. And you know that only that can happen through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so you call us to build your church. You call us to call out to our city, come and see and live. And you have promised us that there will be opposition. But we know, Father, that it is worth it. Because what you are building will last forever. And so we pray that you would humble us and strengthen us to be about that project together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.